0: Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics in historical context with myself, Ali Ansari, and my comrade-in-arms, Suzanne Rain. Today we're going to be talking about the Norway-Russia border. Some of you will have noticed that we omitted this in our last podcast, looking at the enormity of the, the Russian state. But I can confirm to you today that that was deliberate, because today we're going to look specifically at the uh, Norway-Russia border, of which I understand, Suzanne, you have been looking at in some detail.
1: I have, Ali, that's right. I knew already a little bit about it because I've been to it, um, but I've also, since then, been doing quite a lot more research, both historical and modern, and I'm hoping that between us we can have quite an interesting discussion, actually, about this. It's it's only a short border.
0: Yeah, you must be one of the few people to have been up there by the sounds of it. I mean I no, I think there's there's quite a lot of people. (laughs) uh, Secluded spot. Oh is there? Okay. (laughs) I think there's quite
1: a lot of people who've been there. Should we start with some basic facts and then we can basic
0: facts. Yeah.
1: Basic facts. Um and again, although this is a podcast, having an understanding of what it looks like on a map is important. The reason we forgot about it, or didn't forget about it but um, didn't remember to mention it is because it's it's quite short. The actual land border is just shy of 200 kilometres, about 123 miles. There's also obviously a, a marine border and there's a border that goes in the fjord, which is about 23 kilometres long in Varangafjord. But it's across the, if you think of Norway essentially as being largely north-south, but it's around the top of Norway and coming mm. down the other side is, is where yeah. the actual border is with russia it's way into the arctic circle and the main norwegian town on the border is a place called kirkenes which is 69 degrees north and 30 degrees east and just in case ali that you haven't exactly worked out where 30 degrees east is it's the same line as istanbul and alexandria so Hmm. when we think of norway we think of norway as being a western european country but in fact that boundary over yeah, the border with russia is actually as far east as istanbul so that's a little bit of geography for you it's also as far away from oslo as oslo is from rome so again just the scale wow. of the country extraordinary And as you were mentioning to me, what's your one fact that you definitely know about this border?
0: Well, the one fact that I definitely know is it seems to be one of the oldest borders uh, in the world, in fact, agreed between Norway and Novgorod. In 1326, I understand.
1: Well, yes, I can't work <laughs> out exactly who signed this treaty. But it's really interesting because you're right, it's it's really old. And I mean, it seems to have been very much redrafted and re-established in 1826. So how many, is that 500 That's years right, later? Yeah, yeah. But that original treaty between Novgorod and Norway was essentially to regulate spheres of influence In Finnmark, which is still that kind of area in the north of Norway, north of Finland, north of Sweden. And in Russian terms, it's called the Kola Peninsula, which is actually a a big thumb of land that comes eastwards out of that Mm. area. And that's been forever the place where the Sami people live. And they don't consider themselves to be particularly Norwegian, Swedish, Finnish, or Russian, but they are the Sami people. They have their own language, they have their own parliaments. And, And so that treaty was. Essentially, creating a buffer zone where different interested parties saw themselves as having rights over the indigenous Sami people who lived there. So, if you look up about the Treaty of Novgorod, it will essentially say it was about who had the right to exploit the resources that were there, in terms of taxing the indigenous people or in terms of getting fish and fur from the region. There's not an awful lot else that you would do except exploit resources and, and tax the locals, I suppose.
0: I mean, it seems to be. In, in its origins yes, a sort of a, a declared borderland a sort of a marcher territory where, where you know it was a bit of a no man's land between the, the two territories but uh, but obviously they, they had designated it as this sort of borderland uh, and then obviously in the later 19th century when you get that formal treaty you then get the boundaries becoming much, much more defined
1: Yes but this is what makes the whole thing so interesting because it is a critical border now between Norway and, and Russia but actually between NATO and Russia and it has been for a long time so during the cold war the border was one of only two between nato and the soviet union it was this little border up in norway and turkey and then then it all gets complicated after 1991 where where the pack shuffles and from 1991 to 1999 this little border was the only border between russia and NATO, so so it's kind of a border on the front line, and yet at the same time, it's always been a little bit different from other state borders because of the reach of the indigenous Sami people, which who don't recognise the borders in the same way. So that means that you've always had to have this sense of people being able to move backwards and forwards between, you know, if you're if you're a, a herder or a fisherman, you, you know, you need to be able to move your stock. I mean, meters. in that
0: sense, it, yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a fluid border in that sense. So, so on the one hand, it's the one boundary, as you say, between the Soviet Union and NATO effectively, during the Cold War. And yet, at the same time, it's a border where you've got to allow the indigenous people to basically move across that border. It's, it's very fluid. I mean, it, it's a bit of a paradox, really, isn't it?
1: Well, the actual border's not fluid. I mean, the border stays where it is. But what is yeah. really, what but is it? have got to
0: let people move across it.
1: So it's got to, there's got to be a functioning relationship between Russia and Norway. And I think they pride themselves, actually, despite everything, in however bad relations might be between NATO and Russia. Norway and Russia continue to have and we can go into this in more detail later on, they continue to have a cooperative relationship regarding the Barents Sea, regarding maritime conservation, regarding fisheries, and that has been conscious. So I think Norway is the only European country that Russia hasn't been to war with. You know, and there is a relationship there, which is... (laughs) (laughs) Which is important. So, shall I tell you, Ali, what got me interested in this in the first place? I've got this fantastic book called um, Norway's Arctic Highway, which was written by a man called John Douglas, uh, who was my husband's classics teacher. Uh, a long time ago and he started exploring in the 60s around the north of Norway and went up to the North North Cape and he wrote this book about the Arctic Highway which is the road that goes now across the north of Norway from the Arctic Circle goes right the way up through all the fjords past all the fjords and then and then around the top to Kirkenes to the border and this road didn't used to exist I mean if you think think of the Norwegian coast or the, the way of life in northern Norway being not dissimilar to the way of life in northern Scotland and in Ireland before modern transportation where essentially you had coastal fishing communities who communicated more easily by sea than by land. The land was impassable, you know, there were sharp of yes. beams, yes. So you just got on yeah. a boat and you, you went around the coast. So, so there weren't roads and then during the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries they started building an arctic highway that would take you essentially all the way up the spine of Norway and across to Kirkenes at the top and i mean it was slow going because norway was poor don't forget this was before they found oil which was only a, a very recent discovery so yeah. and and it was slow going because you had to keep stopping being on the road and getting a little ferry across the fjord and then getting on another road and then it was only in the in the sort of 1920s and 30s that the construction of this road really took off and that turned out arguably to have been bad timing because then when the germans invaded they said oh brilliant a road and we just need to finish it off a bit and then it'll be incredibly helpful and we can essentially drive all the way up um and probably there's probably historians turning in their graves but but that's what happened (laughs) and and the reason i've brought all this in
0: ali is so did so did did the germans finish it off well that's exactly the germans actually finish it off
1: That's exactly, the Germans did finish it off but the reason I brought this in is because the Germans finished it off by using forced labour from people in whose countries Germany and particularly the Russians. So basically they brought prisoners of war, captives, thousands of them from Russia and from Central and Southern Europe and they came and they built the Arctic Highway which was obviously terrible working conditions. Thousands of them perished from cold. Malnutrition, arbitrary execution, kind of typical Nazi labor practices, and so the Arctic Highway became known then as the Blood Road. And if you if you travel along it now, place, particularly this place called um, Morirana, where where there are stones which memorialise the Russians and other prisoners of war right. or forced laborers who the Germans brought in to North Norway to build the road. So it's not a um, it's not an uncomplicated history, and it's actually a really interesting example where. in 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 fact, it was the Russians who were the victims in this part of Norway at that time. And then, of course, the Germans went right up to the top and over. And it wasn't until 1944 that they started to be pushed back again out of Norway from the north. And the Russians came over into Kirkenes, and the Germans withdrew south. And and again, I mean, it, it's hardly covered anywhere outside the area. But as the Germans withdrew south from Kirkenes back south down into Norway, they carried out a really extensive scorched earth policy. They burned everything. And there are people who who lived. In Kirchner, I, mean, I had in Ki- no
0: idea it was actually a uh, a fighting front.
1: Yes, so already, Ali, you've learned something. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, it,
0: I've it, definitely it, learned something here.
1: It was quite brutally occupied by the Germans during World War II. Kirkenes was subject to. 320 air raids, so more than anywhere else apart from Malta and at the end of the war, the town was basically burnt to the ground by the Germans and in the population, sorry, in the summer of 1944 the population of Kirkenes basically lived in the mine, it's a mining town there's a lot, we'll talk about mining as well, but you had over three and a half thousand people spent the summer in underground while the Russians came in ten children were born in the mine, so on their birth certificate, it's basically underground during that and then and then the Russian army drove out the Germans the other interesting thing is because most of the buildings were made of wood it was very easy for the, they just everything burnt and then the population of Kirkinis after the war they were so determined to just rebuild that they rebuilt in quite a brutal way i.e they didn't put effort into making it look lovely they just said this is our place we're going to rebuild it again so it's another example of the sort of the human spirit triumphing over complete destruction so so that's that's what it's like now on the other side of the border and it's looking at the map again it's quite interesting because you don't realize until you look at a map how close Murmansk and Archangel or I can't pronounce it in the Russian way Archangelsk how close they are to Norway do you, how much do you know about the Arctic convoys?
0: Well, I know a little bit. I know I've obviously read up about this, and this was something actually. You're quite right. That struck me, of course, because wasn't it here in Murmansk and Archangel that that these Arca- Arctic convoys were meant to. have, is, it, is that where they where where they docked? I mean, wasn't it also something that prior to the, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941? There were also German ships that would actually move into the Arctic Circle and would dock in these places. So this must have been a, a, a fairly sort of vulnerable area, of um, a fairly sensitive area of, uh, of conduct, particularly as the Germans were moving up there prior, you know, when they were allied with the Soviet Union. But it is very close. I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right. You look at the map. I mean, when we say very close, it looks close on the map, <laughs> by the way. I'm sure this is hundreds and hundreds of miles. But uh, well, you know, but well, they... still, I mean, it, it. you don't really, you know... You don't realise how close, I mean, Norway, I suppose the thing is, is that the Norwegian border is fairly close to Murmansk.
1: Exactly. The Norwegian border is fairly close to Murmansk. And again, this, this is why it's all so strategically significant. And it's it's not just because all of these countries converge here it's also because of the north atlantic whatever it's called the north atlantic drift the thing that the current of warm water that comes across the atlantic that makes
0: the currents yeah makes
1: makes the british isles so temperate in comparative terms and that's what gives i mean it is still really cold up there but you have this flow of warmish water that that comes along the north coast of norway and then round through the Barents Sea, which is what essentially makes it passable in, in a way that it wouldn't be if it were at that latitude somewhere else. So yeah. <laughs> so again, so, so you have this piece of, of water, marine territory, which is between the Norwegian Sea on the west of Norway and the Barents Sea, which goes around the top of Norway and into where Murmansk and, and Archangel are, which is passable and therefore usable. And that was why in the second world war that was the critical piece of water for the arctic convoys which were supply ships taking military supplies and provisions and and whatever was necessary to russia this is only obviously after russia the soviet union came in on the side of the allies in the war up to that point it it wasn't so i was going to ali because i really care about this i was going to just tell you the story of the battle of the north cape (laughs) (laughs) well i'm going to try and i am not just so clear. I am not a military historian, and I'm definitely not a naval historian, but I went to the North Cape, and it's the first time that I really understood the importance of naval battles, and I started to feel the sort of excitement of them. So what was happening? The Allies were sending convoys from from Britain or from America, across to Murmansk, through round the top of Norway, through the Barents Sea. And in the Battle of the Murmansk Convoys from 1941 to 1945. There were enormous losses on all sides. They lost sixty two full and twenty eight empty freighters and nineteen escort vessels they were sunk. About approximately two thousand seven hundred Allied seamen, civilians and military personnel were killed. And for the Germans, they lost the Tirpitz, the Scharnhorst, and at least at least fifteen German U boats, so approximately three thousand seven hundred men. But I think those numbers don't actually really give you a sense of of the horror of it. So the convoy were normally about 30 cargo ships and they would be then accompanied by lots of sort of cruisers whose job would be essentially to defend the convoys and then under the, the destroyers,
0: sea yeah, to basically... yeah, and
1: then under the sea you'd have the u-boats as well so you've got this sort of arctic hunting ground and the, the thing that was causing the most problem was this german battlecruiser scharnhorst which was an incredibly capable battlecruiser that was just consistently attacking the convoys so there was a man called admiral sir bruce fraser and he was responsible for the home fleet and he decided he was going to neutralize Scharnhorst through a cunning ruse and the cunning ruse was to use one of the convoys heading to russia as bait and this action took place in december 1943 so one of the other things ali because we've established the answers not very much what are the other things yeah. that you know about December in the Arctic? What do you think it's going to be like in December? In what are the, the other
0: Arctic? things that I know?
1: Yeah, what just
0: Well, I just, think it's going to be extremely cold and yes? probably very and and, and probably uh, ice, ice, lots of ice.
1: Okay, what else because you' you're, you're in the you're in the high north so what what happens in December in the high north?
0: Oh it's going to be extremely dark
1: There is no daylight. Is be dark? It's going to be dark. There's no daylight because no yeah, yeah. you we have this thing called the blue yeah. hour, which is essentially where the sun doesn't right. come above the horizon, but you you get you get the light echoing from it. But it it is dark all the time. So here you had Admiral Sabre's Fraser says we're going to use Convoy JW55B as bait for the Scharnhorst. The Scharnhorst, and this is where you've got to sort of start seeing it as not just a battle cruiser, but as sort of an an entity with an identity. The Scharnhorst was, it used to hide in Altafjord, which is a long, deep fjord just by Alta, which is a town on the west coast, actually, but in Finnmark, so not so far away from the North Cape. So it would sneak into Altafjord and it would hide there. And the Norwegian resistance, who were fabulous all the way through the war, they had a critical role in this because they had been given the job of watching the Scharnhorst and notifying the British when it was leaving the Altafjord. So they had a man, I'm going to give you a few Norwegian names, but they should be remembered. So I'm going to try and say them. There was a radio telegraphist.
0: I'm I'm looking forward to listening to your pronunciation. (laughs) I'm
1: going to do my
0: best.
1: So there are are four characters here, but there's radio telegraphist Torsten Roby, And he was camouflaged as a county roads office employee under under his paymaster Carl Rasmussen, who was also in on it. And then there was an agent at Kofjord called Harry Pettersen, and he had a contact called Jens Digre in Langfjorden. And on Christmas Day at at 7 p.m., they all called each other. Essentially, Digre called Pettersen, who called Rasmussen, leaving the coded message: "Grandmother has left on her Christmas holiday." And what do you think that you meant, are. Ali?
0: Did that mean the Sharn horse had left, or something, or the yes. Sharn was en route, or something like this?
1: <laughs> yes, you would have been. Yes, a, a I'd, very... I'd be.
0: I'd be good at this. If, I'd be you were, good at this. Yeah. if you were a
1: German radio interceptor, you'd have known exactly yeah. what was going on. Yeah. Um, grandmother has left on her Christmas holiday, exactly. and Torsten Roby immediately telegraphed Britain, and he was later honoured for that, and um, and notified them that the Schandhals was on the way, and he was never caught actually, although Rasmussen was, and he was arrested and tortured, and he committed suicide rather than reveal his oh. contact. So Admiral Fraser received confirmation from the Admiralty in the early hours of the 26th of December that the Scharnhorst was at sea and it was searching... For the convoy. This is where the weather and the darkness are critical to everything so, so it was incredibly stormy the Luftwaffe couldn't get their reconnaissance planes up there so they couldn't search for the British ships and so the Scharnhorst was trying to sort of locate the convoy itself and it, it was sailing round and round in that bit off the North Cape looking, Admiral Bay who was in charge of uh, the Scharnhorst he was looking for the British convoy he thought he'd gone too far and he came back again and at that point HMS Belfast now you can go and visit it it's now on the Thames it belongs to the I know a lot about the HMS Belfast do you what do you what do you know about HMS well
0: I've been on it nothing really I mean I've (laughs) actually been on it yeah
1: well it's a it's a fantastic day out and actually it it has some really good displays that, that make you think about what it would have been like to be at the Battle of the North Cape so HMS Belfast
0: yeah absolutely
1: um was there and it, it obtained radar contact on the Scharnhorst and and a, a bunch of British cruisers. Sorry, again that's not naval words rapidly closed on the Scharnhorst and there we had you had this extraordinary thing Mm. where the Scharnhorst was was bigger and faster than any of the British ships but it didn't have as good radar capabilities and it didn't have the communications so British cruisers opened fire Scharnhorst responded and Scharnhorst didn't hit any British ships but the Scharnhorst was hit twice and one shell destroyed the forward radar controls. And that was critical because it left it blind. So it's pitch dark, it's a snowstorm, it's I mean did it
0: it, it couldn't see yeah. So
1: and this is where you, you sort of if you think of it as a, a woolly mammoth being hunted by ancient hunts people, suddenly, even though it's this enormous ship, it's got all these capabilities, but Where
0: it, where do you find these analogies from? I think it's quite a good analogy for the for the area we're thinking of.
1: But this this alley, this is what happened. So this this enormous ship that had been the the scourge of the convoys still has all these capabilities but it can't see and it's it is pitch dark it's snowing all yeah. the everything is icing up so if you think every time a wave comes over the bow it's just icing up and so once it was blinded it tried to run away i mean it tried to sort of shake off its pursuers then it i mean it didn't give up trying to attack the convoy but it started to move kind of erratically because it didn't know where they were and it couldn't see meanwhile the british cruisers and destroyers again i mean they can't really see it but they do have the radar and so they pursue it it's it's not fair to say that British didn't have their own problems. You had a number of them with engine problems Um, and there was a stage Mm. where HMS Belfast, you can go and see it on the Thames, it's fantastic was the only pursuer, so this dogged little ship pursuing this massive German battlecruiser, which I think they were all a bit concerned about. And then finally, um, so the Belfast was sending constant stream of radio signals saying this is where the Scharnhorst is. And then the, the British battleship, the Duke of York, battled through the rough seas, reached the German ship. And then you had uh, essentially a, a, what I imagine as being a typical naval battle with you know broadsides being fired. The Belfast fired some... Um, Star shells Into the sky Which illuminated The Shan horse And it was then Sunk I'm cutting A long story short With the loss Of almost All of their men So that's that
0: So what's the um I mean looking at we, We've got the historical basis We've got the You know We've settled on this This border That's basically established In the 14th century But you know defined probably in 1826, then obviously we've got the experience of the Cold War. What, Suzanne, is the relevance and the importance of this border for us today? What does that tell us about the situation today and with Putin's Russia as your neighbour? How do the Norwegians feel about that?
1: One of the things that is noteworthy about this is the fact that Norway and Russia continue to cooperate and will continue to cooperate. And they've both been quite clear that they will do. And there's two reasons I think. I think that there's are there's a driving that cooperation. It's the coexistence in the Barents Sea. And there's agreements in place around fishing and around environmental protection, which have been hard won over the last 50 years, and which even despite the Russian invasion of Ukraine, continue to exist. So the only ongoing cooperation between Norway and the Soviet Union during the Cold War was on fisheries management which was based on agreements from the 50s and the 70s. Mm. There's quite a lot of Norwegian unhappiness or has been over a long period of time about environmental damage that was headed towards Norway from, from what the Russians were doing on the Russian side. You had a place called Nickel which is part of a, a large Russian nickel mine which is just on the other side and in Kirkenes in the 90s 1980s, people complained or people protested against Death clouds from the nickel smelters just over the border, and there was this great fear that pollution, oil, and and radioactivity could be transported through the Siberian rivers into the Arctic Ocean, and then and then into the Barents Sea. There's actually also, Ali, up there, a, a sort of large island archipelago called Novaya Zemlya, where the Russians conducted a series of nuclear tests, and again, that sort of borders onto the Barents Sea. So, so there's been for a very long time this sort of concern about how to cohabit but also how to protect the environment, how to protect fisheries. There's an intergovernmental agreement from 1992, which agreed that until so 1992 is a noteworthy date because that's obviously after the end of the Soviet Union, when Norway and Russia agreed to work together. And they've now got, I mean, certainly on the Norwegian side, they've got a plan on protecting environment resources and they balance out fish stock every year. So they, I mean, they've they reached an agreement this year, for example, on, right. on how many fish should be fished. And the Norwegian Minister of Fisheries and Maritime Affairs has said that Russians will still be allowed to fish in the Norwegian zone, and they'll still be allowed to land the fish in Norwegian ports. And that's despite, obviously, because the EU has obviously imposed sanctions and restrictions on what Russian ships can do. But the Norwegian position is this agreement, all of these agreements have been hard won, and they're very important to us. So we are going to make sure that we maintain collaboration or not collaboration, that maybe that sounds wrong, but a cooperative relationship with Russia on fisheries. So that's the Norwegian position on that.
0: But is there, I mean, aside from sort of management of the resources and the, you know, environmental side of things, I mean, do you think there's actually a, is there a military Threat or, or problem with that border, or is it really being managed in a in a way that is out of you know out of sync in a way, or out of um, character with the with, with the rest of the relationship? I mean, I I, I saw the Norwegians and the other Scandinavian countries are obviously busy putting up a show of you know solidarity and force to to deter any Russian attempts. I mean, obviously we don't think they're necessarily going to be piling over the Norwegian border, but at the same time it is a military border. Isn't it? I mean, there are some sensitivities to that border. I take
1: this is where that land border I think is the least of our worries. In a way, because mm. you're right. I mean, it, it, the the land border right. as we've established right. is is kind of fixed. It's been fixed, sort of fixed since 1326. There's nothing in it for the Russians, really, to to try and. and why, they're not going to do that. But yeah. But if you look at a map, the bit that really matters to them all is the Barents Sea, which doesn't right, which is the sea. So then you end up trying to understand how the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea impacts on the exclusive economic Zone. So you have a sovereign state has special rights regarding exploration and use of marine resources, including energy production from water and wind from the outer limit of the territorial sea to about 200 nautical miles. That's your exclusive economic zone. So you've got, if if you sort of draw, the reason it becomes complicated, because if you draw lines up from Norway and up from Russia, they're both coming up into the Barents Sea. And that right to exploit and use marine resources there is an attractive one, but um, has the potential to become a competitive one. And Norway and Russia negotiated... 40 years from from the 1970s before that but from the from 1970 to 2010 negotiations were ongoing between the two about essentially how to how to demarcate whose exclusive economic zone was where in the Barents Sea and they finally signed a treaty on September the 15th 2010 foreign ministers from Norway and Russia on maritime delimitation and cooperation in the Barents Sea and the Arctic Ocean. That's important because part of that treaty opens up the possibility of hydrocarbon exploration. So while there wasn't a treaty, there was a kind of moratorium on hydrocar- uh. hydrocarbon. And, now, and, and the treaty makes possible hydrocarbon exploration because it essentially agrees that they, would, they will share it. So even if they find it in one, they will enable the other also to, to explore Again, I'm massively simplifying, I can see with your head in your hands. Mm. Jens Stoltenberg has a role in this because he was Prime Minister of Norway at the time that this was all agreed, and he is, of course, now yeah, that's right. yeah. Secretary General of NATO. So a recent assessment by the US Geological Survey estimated that there might be something like 11 billion barrels of crude oil and 380 trillion cubic feet of natural gas under or in the Barents Sea shelf so that's a lot and Crikey. this <laughs>
0: that does make a. Well, there's a there's a factoid that another thing I've learned
1: sorry Ali you're just you're just being bombarded with facts from me I'm but blown away but that's who knows what's going to happen so so obviously this is bad timing for lots of reasons because hydrocarbons aren't fashionable at the moment and Norway already has been having complicated conversations within itself about what to do with the fact that it's become wealthy through hydrocarbons but actually you know, wants to be ecologically sound. So there is an argument against further exploration for hydrocarbons on ecological grounds. And the I second... I mean, presumably
0: one of the advantages, I was going to say, presumably one of the advantages the Norwegians have over the Russians, although, again, you don't need to answer this if you don't know the answer, by the way. But But one of the advantages they may have is that they have more experience of offshore drilling. I mean, having had all that experience in the North yeah. Sea, obviously. So yeah, Presumably I mean, I... all this oil and gas has to be sort of extricated. I don't know whether the Russians do, but presumably they don't have the same type of experience and the same type of access to sort of equipment.
1: I assume not either, um, although they've obviously got yeah. a lot of experience of mining in Siberia. But the the problem yes. the problem at the moment is that anything which the Norwegians do has to be shared with the Russians through this treaty, and of course the West really does have sanctions on Russian oil and gas. So so what exactly is made of? these potential hydrocarbon resources in, in the Barents Sea, I think, is still is still not clear, certainly to me. I'm sure some of our listeners will put us right.
0: Another uh, fascinating aspect of it, of course, is that um, uh is actually the base of the, uh, the Russian Northern Fleet, which I think is probably the oldest of the uh, Russian fleets, founded in 1733, can you believe it? And obviously, you know, part of the expansion or part of the determination of the Russians to also look uh, westwards uh, eventually. But it was uh, was, uh, a significant naval base throughout the Cold War, but somewhat neglected post-Cold War. And if you remember, there was that tragedy over one of the submarines, I think it was called the Kursk that basically the, the death of 118 sailors or so that was uh one of the uh, submarines from actually the the northern fleet and i think it was sort of signified or was emblematic of the decline i suppose of that fleet uh, really in the post-war post-cold war i should say period but then interestingly enough with the advent of one vladimir putin to the presidency of russia uh renewed interest and money was put into the uh, uh the northern fleet to strengthen that area in the north which Goes in quite well with some of the other things that we are discussing really about uh, Russia's aspirations in the north and its, its its relationship with Norway on this border. So, Suzanne, I, one final thing I would ask you, uh, although I have to say I'm going to have to now practice my own pronunciation. You were mentioning earlier something about Svalbard, and I need you to explain that to me.
1: Thank you, Ali. Svalbard, as you know, is uh, used to be known as Spitsbergen. And that's um, a group of islands Uh... due north. So in between in between Norway and and the North Pole and it's famous for its polar bears. It was defined uh, and it was kind of given to Norway. Uh, in the Spitsbergen Treaty, or not given to Norway, but it, it became clear that it was Norwegian in the Spitsbergen Treaty of 1920, which was later renamed. The Svalbard Treaty, and it and it gave sovereignty to Norway, but under strict conditions, which was that it was to remain a demilitarized zone with no permanent military presence allowed, and all parties to the treaty, which right. is a lot of right. them, would have equal rights to commercial activity. And then it became strategically important during World War Two, where it was a, where basically German submarines used to go and hide there to get at the at the Arctic convoys, and it has about three thousand people living there. And the only other country with a serious interest in Svalbard is Russia, which still calls it Spitsbergen. It has coal mines there, which it's been mining. And, and there's sort of Russian coal mining towns, which are quite deserted now, but, but are Russian coal mining towns on Svalbard. So the reason I wanted to just talk a tiny bit about it before we finished is that these questions about how Norway and Russia are getting on and I've tried to paint you a fairly calm picture saying, you know, they agree that they need to cooperate. There's no you have. Yeah. point in falling out. Well, Lavrov, a Russian foreign minister, has over the last few years been making a series of comments about Svalbard, which when you piece them all together are just a little bit alarming. And so this, I think is just something small to watch as it develops. So it started in um, 2017. They had the Barents Euro-Arctic Council meeting and Lavrov lashed out at his Norwegian counterpart, and said um, that Russian legitimate rights in the area were being repeatedly restricted. The Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs had submitted two diplomatic notes about Svalbard to the Norwegians, but they'd had no response. They'd called for dialogue, but the Norwegians hadn't responded. And he said, I believe this does not correspond with good neighbourly relations. And then that was 2017. And then mm. in 2020, so 2020 was the 100th anniversary of the Spitsbergen Treaty. And again, Lavrov claimed that Oslo had been seeking to limit Russian activity in the area against the treaty's guarantee of equal liberty of access. And it complained about the creation of fishery protection zones, which Norway says are ecological measures. So again, it's similar. Issues that, as you have actually in the on the coasts of Scotland, where you're trying to do marine conservation, which means that the fishermen can't go in. Um, but they also complained of interference with Russian helicopter flights and changes in deportation rules, charging. You- targeting Russian citizens. So you've had this complaints coming out and a letter from Lavrov to his Norwegian counterpart, which then seemed to become part of a more coordinated Russian messaging offensive. And I'm going to finish with a quote from Russia's Consul General in Svalbard in 2020, Sergei Gushchin, who gave a lengthy interview to Rossiskaya Gazeta. Where he said that Russians were being increasingly squeezed by local Norwegian authorities, he says there's no outright pressure from the Norwegian side to make Russians leave, but it feels that you know we're we're being disturbed, and he underlines this is the bit that I thought you know just there's some echoes here which I think we should just think about. He underlines that the Russians have the right to stay in the archipelago and said spitzbergen is also our land it is covered by the blood of our ancestors so that is the statement from
0: the Russian. that's not encouraging
1: consul general in svalbard
0: so there seems to be a certain amount of russian russian irredentism of of, at least imagined irredentism even to the north i started this podcast basically thinking that we're dealing with 180 or 190 kilometers of border right at the northern fringes of europe you know with uh uh, Russia, Norway, of which, you know, really they'd achieved some sort of, I don't know, modus vivendi, really, and uh, were really, I, I suppose, in, in many ways, getting on with the environment and, and resource sharing and this, that, and the other. But uh, as you, I think you've brilliantly pointed out, I mean, this is a vast border if you go into the Barents Sea and further north and to Spitsbergen and uh, uh, these areas, that it's, uh, there are, he- Svalbard, uh, uh, you're quite right. It's an area of uh, huge potential friction, actually. I mean, that's that's what's um, what's quite unnerving. And as you say, Russian commentary, recent Russian commentary. Uh, in the context of what's been happening further south in Ukraine and others is probably not as uh, as encouraging as it should be but thank you very much for that real tour de force and I have to say it was a bit of an eye-opener I wasn't expecting it to be quite so uh, quite so intriguing but uh, there you are these are these little areas these geopolitical these geopolitical nuggets that we need to keep an eye on so I think on that note uh it's uh until next time that's bye from me and goodbye from me